I want to set a scene for you. I just want you to get a picture in your mind so you understand what we're talking about here. The streets are packed beyond anything you can ever imagine. I know you live in Southern California. I know you know from traffic. I know you understand what it's like when the freeway is backed up and everybody gets off the freeway and then Huntington is backed up and then Royal Oaks is backed up and Duarte Road is backed up. I know you guys know that story. If you've lived in California for any length of time, you're used to crowds. You know what it's like to go to the shopping mall at Christmas time and see just no parking spaces, millions of people everywhere. There's a lot of people that live where we live, but you have never seen the kind of crowd I'm talking about, where the streets are so filled with people that there's absolutely no way really to make it across town in less than half a day, where where you, you couldn't walk across the street. You'd have to hold on to the person you're with. Otherwise, you'd get separated from them. The streets are filled with people. From the time the sun comes up to the time the sun comes down, absolutely packed with people. But on this particular night, after the streets being so filled with people all week, on this particular night, there's no one on the streets. As the sun is going down, you can hear crickets. It's empty. There's no one to be seen. Everyone is indoors. The city is Jerusalem. The week is Passover week. And people have come from miles around to be in the city of David on the time of Passover. To be where the temple is. To be in the place where God's people congregate every year. Where there will be So many lambs slaughtered and so many Passover meals eaten. And now it is the day. It is the time for the eating of the Seder meal. And so there is nobody on the streets. Every banquet hall is rented in full. Every inn is filled with people. Every house is stuffed full of people because anyone that you know, any relative, any distant relative who has come in from out of town is staying with you and they are having the Passover meal. And so for the first time all week, there is nobody on the streets whatsoever. And every family is together. And in every house, the exact same thing is happening. In every house, there is a large table In every house, though the bowls and the cups and the candlesticks may look different, there are bowls and cups and candlesticks on every table. And in those bowls and cups and plates, they have the same foods from one house to the next. There is no variation whatsoever. They will all be eating the same things tonight. And they will all do it at the same time and in the same way. They actually have a script that they will follow. And the script says that there will come a time when the father will acknowledge the youngest son and the youngest son will ask the first of four questions that he has been memorizing for just this day. And he's been practicing. And if he's young, he's nervous. And he knows that all the weight is falling upon him. And he's memorized the questions that he's supposed to ask. And when they all get seated and grandma's at this side and Aunt Bertha is over here and everybody's come around and everybody's there, finally the father sits down at the head of the table and after a moment, he nods to his youngest son who with quivering lip asks this question. Abba, Daddy, 
What makes this night different from every other night? It's the same question that is asked by the youngest male in every household. It's asked at the same time, and it is answered exactly the same way in every home, every year. It's the father's cue to begin a history lesson. And he takes his family back in history, back to the land of Egypt, back to a time that none of them can remember, back to a time nearly 1,500 years before, a time when the people of Israel were enslaved to the people of Egypt. They've been in Egypt now for 400 years. Gone are the days of Joseph. Gone are the days when Joseph brought his family into Egypt in order to save them from the famine. And now the Jewish people have, have multiplied and grown up and God has blessed them. And pharaohs have come and gone, come and gone, come and gone. And now there is no pharaoh who even cares that Joseph ever existed and couldn't care less about these Israelites except for one thing. There's now two million of them. And as he looks out upon them, he says, this is a problem. Because if they ever organize, if they ever weaponize, if they ever militarize, we are in deep trouble. We've got to do something to keep these people down. And so they begin to take away the rights of the people of Israel in Egypt, and eventually they enslave them. They become forced labor where they are making bricks all day in order to build buildings that the Pharaoh has ordered to be built. And they come under extreme oppression. And eventually God's people begin to cry out from the land of Israel. And the Father is telling the story. And when they cry out, God responds by calling a man. A man nobody would have ever thought of. A guy who's shy. A guy who doesn't like public speaking. A guy who has a checkered past. And a guy who stutters every time he speaks. And his name is Moses. And God says to this man, Moses, I am going to use you and you are going to confront the Pharaoh, the most powerful man in all the world, and you are going to bring him a message for me and the message is you must let my people go. And after some discussion, Moses decides that he'll do it. And empowered by God, he goes into the Pharaoh's palace and has a meeting face to face with the Pharaoh and he says, I come here representing the one and only true God, and God has given me a message for you. You must let His people go immediately. And the Pharaoh laughs in his face. And the Pharaoh says, you, your God thinks He's so great. See how He likes this. I'm going to increase their labor instead of letting them go. And Moses says, if you do, you will be sorry. And Pharaoh sends him away and increases their labor. And so the plagues begin. Not one, not two, not five, nine plagues. Each one more extreme than the last. Each one more devastating than the previous one. And every time as the people of Egypt suffer under these plagues, Pharaoh justifies it, writes it off, and, and decides that he's going to continue to stiffen his neck and harden his heart. And his heart becomes harder and harder with each of these plagues. Until after nine plagues, the people of e Egypt are suffering tremendously, but now this is a battle of the gods. Pharaoh, who claims to be God, is fighting against the one true God, and he will not be thwarted, he says. And this is when God announces there will be a tenth plague. And the tenth plague will make all of the other plagues look like child's play. This will be the most horrific of the plagues by far. And the father is explaining this in answer to the son's question, 
what makes tonight different than every other night. And he's speaking from Exodus chapter 12. If you have your Bibles, go to the book of Exodus. Second book of the Old Testament. Because the things we're going to be looking at in this new series, you're not going to understand if you don't understand this history. And so the father begins to quote from Exodus chapter 12, where we read in verse 1, Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year for you. He actually decides he's going to change the calendar. It would be like for us, if God decided to do something great in July, and he decided that from now on, July will be the first of the year. He says, what I'm going to do is going to be so great and so memorable and so important. It is a new beginning. Nothing will be like this. And you will count this as the beginning of days as you look to your calendar in the future. Verse 3, speak to the congregation of Israel saying, on the 10th of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now if the household is too small, For a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of the persons in them. According to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old, and you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh that same night roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left until morning, you shall burn it with fire. Now you shall eat in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I, says the Lord, will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned for you in the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, but on the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats anything leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel." On the first day you shall have a holy assembly, and and another holy assembly on the seventh day. No work at all shall be done on them except what what must be eaten by every person. That alone may be prepared by you. You shall also observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations. It is a permanent ordinance. That took place nearly 1,500 years before this Passover that we're going to see in the book of Luke. And for 1,500 years, it had been continuing. And it will be the same 
every single year in every Jewish household. The same gathering, the same food, the same drinks, each one symbolic, the same questions asked by the youngest son, each taste a reminder of something significant that God wants them to remember. There will be salt water and you'll take some like a leafy vegetable and you will dip it into the salt water and you will eat the salty substance and it will be a reminder of your forefathers' tears in Egypt. And you'll take these bitter herbs, basically horseradish, and each person will take a large scoop of this horseradish and will eat all of it. And yes, they cried. And as their sinuses cleared from the horseradish, they then ate the next thing. And it was a a jelly or a paste of some sort that was made by smashing and mixing fruit. And all of these sweet fruits were mixed together into this bowl. And it looked sort of like a paste. It was to remind them of the mortar that they used and the bricks that they used to make when they were enslaved. But it tasted sweet. It was such a contrast from the bitter herbs that they had just eaten that it was to remind them that though you may be living in bitterness, God promises you a day of sweetness. And every family ate the bitter herbs after drinking the salt water and before eating the fruits. And then came the lamb. And everyone ate the lamb. Roasted. To remind them that on that night there was a lamb that was killed. And its blood was put above the the door frame and down the door post. And it was a reminder that of that day when the angel of the Lord passed over the land of Egypt. And he smote every firstborn uh, animal and person in all of Egypt. Except those who were under the blood. To be under the blood was to be saved. To be outside of the blood was to be destroyed. And the firstborn male in every household did not wake up the next morning. And there was wailing in the streets of Egypt. And finally, the Pharaoh, his own son, dead, relented. And he said, get out of here. And not only were they allowed to leave, but they were allowed to take the treasures of Egypt with them. And God brought his people out of Israel and toward a land of out of Egypt and toward a land of promise. And after that story had been told, and after all of the food had been eaten, the father would take a cup and he would pray over this cup that would then be shared. And his prayer over this cup was a prayer of thanksgiving for the deliverance of their forefathers, and it ended with a prayer of a coming deliverance because they had been told there would be another deliverer, one greater than even Moses, one who would deliver them forever and restore them to their place of prominence as God's people. And they prayed that God would send that Messiah. And they had been praying that for 1,500 years. That's why the streets were crowded all week in Jerusalem that week. And that's why the streets were empty as they sat down to enjoy the Passover meal together. And this ritual that we see at Passover is pregnant with meaning. And it reminds them of so many things because it has not been an easy time for these people even up till now. Because that was 1,500 years ago that they were delivered out of bondage. But since then, the people of 
Israel have been in bondage more than they've been out of bondage. They've been in captivity to the Babylonians. They were in captivity to the Persians. They were in captivity to the Greeks. They were in captivity to the Syrians. And now for longer than any of them can remember, they have been under the captivity of Rome. Still captive. Still celebrating the Passover and its symbols of freedom. And for 1,500 years, it's been that way. And for the last 400 years, not a prophet has set foot in Israel and not a word has been heard from their God. But recently, there's been a stirring. There was this guy who appeared on the scene. His name was John, and he looked wild and crazy. He wore like a, 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 a fur skin tunic, and his hair was all wild, and he ate bugs. I mean, this is a crazy guy. He lives out in the wilderness. But he would come in and he would preach with power. And people would be blown away by his preaching. And suddenly someone said, you know, he reminds me of Elijah. This is like those prophets that we heard about. They used to come and they used to preach without apology the word of God. And they would call us to repentance. And that's just what John was doing. And he said, you know that Savior that you've been praying for? His time is at hand. You better get ready. And then the word got out. This rabbi named Jesus had come to John and during the baptism, something crazy happened. There was this manifestation that came down from heaven and rested upon him as he was being baptized. The Holy Spirit looking like a dove and the voice of God from heaven saying, this is my beloved son. And the word got out and everybody had been talking about it. And they kept their eye on this Jesus. And for three years, he had been traveling from village to village and city to city, and he had been preaching a kind of a gospel they had never heard before, and he had been healing the sick, and he had been raising the dead, and he had been casting out demons. He had been showing authority even over nature. And they wondered, could this possibly be the one? Could this possibly be this Messiah that our fathers have been praying for at the end of the Passover meal every single year of our lives? Has God finally heard our prayers? Is He finally sending us deliverance from this evil Roman government that tortures us? And just a few days before, Jesus had ridden into town on a donkey, fulfilling a prophecy about the Messiah. And the people filled the streets and they shouted, save us, you're the Savior, save us. And they praised him and they honored him. And now the streets are empty and it's time to eat the Passover meal. And they were wondering. It had to have been the most exciting Passover in anyone's lifetime. This sense that we're right on the verge of deliverance. Maybe this will be the night that the Romans will be crushed the way the Egyptians were crushed so many years ago. But don't forget, it's been a dark time for the people of Israel. There hasn't been much to be hopeful about. But now, there seems to be this new light that's piercing the darkness. And we're going to pick up the story in Luke chapter 22. So we're starting this new sermon series that's leading us up to Easter. It's called The Road to the Cross. And we're going to just be dropping in and looking at some moments that take place in these last days before the cross and the resurrection. And I thought it would be good to begin today in Luke chapter 22. So let's go to Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 1. 
Now the feast of unleavened bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death, for they were afraid of the people. And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. Now they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them, apart from the crowd. You know the story. These Jewish leaders hate Jesus. They, they're, they're threatened by him. The people are going away from us and they're following after him. Well, what's going to happen to our plans and our ministry and our authority and our honor and our wealth and all of the things that we take for granted? But maybe worse than all of that, he's a blasphemer. Not once, not twice, but again and again and again and again and again in public where everybody can hear him. He keeps claiming to be God. And if you're a good Jewish priest, you know that the worst thing anybody can do is claim to be God because there is but one God. You've been reciting it since you could speak. There is one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. And so the Lord is one God, and along comes this rabbi who claims to be God. And so not only does he threaten us as religious leaders, but, but we feel it's our religious duty to get rid of this guy because he's guilty of blasphemy, and he's leading the people astray. You know that the Romans ruled harshly. They took away their rights. They kept them oppressed. What little money they had was taken away in taxes. They were forced to serve this governor that uh, they did not want to follow. And they had to pay their taxes to Caesar who claimed to be God. And so the Romans kept the Jews down. And you know about the crowds. The crowds loved them. And the reason the crowds loved them is because there were people walking around who used to be blind and now they could see. The crowds loved them because there were people walking around showing off their skin saying, I used to be leprous, but look at me now. Because there were people walking around whose funerals they had attended and now they're up and walking around as God has raised them from the dead. And they were turned on by this Jesus. And they couldn't wait to see what he was going to do. So you know about the crowds. And of course you know about Judas who's introduced to us here. Judas, the one who's called Iscariot. The one who betrayed him. You and I, we could pick Judas out of any painting of the twelve apostles, couldn't we? We would know him right away. If we were walking in the mall and Judas walked past us, we would recognize him. We would know this guy. Beady little eyes. Long pointy nose. Maybe even pointy ears. You know, like a pointy little chin with a little goatee on the end. Maybe even a pointy tail stuffed up under his robe, right? Judas, the scumbag, the villain of all time. The worst one who's ever lived in the history of the world, as most Christians would say. But you may have forgotten some things about Judas. Because as long as I see Judas as this terrible, evil traitor then I don't have to relate to him at all. But let me just remind you of some things about Judas. 
he was handpicked by Jesus himself. After Jesus went away and prayed all night asking God for direction as to who should be his 12 apostles who would be empowered, he chose Judas. And you know what? Judas performed miracles. Did you realize that? Some of you are looking at me like, I think you're a liar. Go to Luke chapter 9. Let me show you this. This is the guy with the pointy tail and ears, Judas. Luke chapter 9, verse 1. And he, Jesus, called the twelve together and gave them, how many did he call together? The twelve, not eleven, right? Twelve. He called them together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, neither staff nor bag nor bread nor money, and do not even have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. And as for those who do not receive you as you go out from that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Departing, they began going throughout the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Judas healed in the name of Jesus. Jesus, or Judas performed miracles in the name of Jesus. And Judas, by the way, was a powerful preacher. And wherever he went, he preached the gospel, and people were taken, and people were moved, and people wanted to become followers of Jesus because Judas the apostle preached in the power of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, have you ever thought about this? Judas must have been amongst the most trusted of all of the 12 disciples. How do we know that? He was the money keeper. So when they realized people are starting to donate money to support this ministry and the things that we're doing, we need somebody who's going to be in charge of taking care of all the finances, somebody who will keep the money, somebody who will take care of the uh, responsibilities with it. Who should we pick? Oh, Judas, obviously. The trustworthy one. Judas was not such a bad guy, except he was greedy, and he was a thief. And now, he's been stealing money all along from the money box that he carries. And even now, it's for money. 30 pieces of silver that he negotiates to betray Jesus. He looked good to everybody. Gifted, powerful, committed, trustworthy, great track record. But on the inside, he had hidden sin. On the inside, his heart was not right. And he had an area of his life that he would not let Jesus rule over. So eventually he finds himself within the temple courts seeking out the, the chief priests and coming to them to make them an offer to betray Jesus to them. And can you imagine how shocked they must have been when he walked in? Judas the apostle, Judas the preacher, Judas the miracle worker, Judas the trustworthy one. And he comes in and says, listen, if you pay me off, I'll turn him over to you. 
and they make a deal. I want to stop here and ask you this question. Just think about this. Do you have anything in common with Judas? You're going to find out when your plans begin to differ from God's plans. You'll find out. When you have a vision for your life and some ideas of how things ought to go and God says, no, they're going to go another way and you're not going to like that way nearly as much, you're going to find out how much you have in common with Judas. What will you do then? What, what does it take for you to betray Jesus? I've betrayed him more times than I can count. I wonder if you have. Have you ever just become so weary in trying to do good and, and you just keep running into roadblocks and falling into holes and bad stuff keeps happening in your life and you think, I'm, I'm trying here, God, and after a while, you're praying out to God and you, and you say, I've, I've, I've tried to serve God. I've been praying and praying and praying. It's like my prayers are bouncing back off the ceiling like He doesn't even hear me at all. And God doesn't even seem to be listening. And at some point, you just want to throw your hands in the air and go, you know what? Forget it. I know God wants me to do this or be that or go here, but I'm going to just go my own way. <clears throat> You ever lost some of your passion for Jesus? It happens. A lot of us have been through this or, or known somebody who's been through this. You see it in marriages all the time where it's, it's interesting. In my role as a pastor, I get to, I get to do a lot of weddings. <clears throat> and never once has there been a couple who has come to me and said, hey, we got engaged. We want you to do the wedding. We're going to come for premarital counseling. And they come in and sit down for premarital counseling. And I say, Tell me your story. And they go, well, basically we can't stand each other. And what we're looking for is a way to hurt each other as many times as we can until finally we're so sick of it that we're going to go separate directions. Nobody has ever told me that. Never once. And I stand up here and they do this thing where they join hands and they look into each other's eyes and tears form in their eyes. And they say, I take a vow before God and these people to love, honor, and cherish till death do us part. And as far as I know, I've never known one couple that didn't mean it. And the wedding's great, and the honeymoon's great, but after a while, the honeymoon is over, and after a little while, things begin to pile up, and there's some hurt, and there's some indiscretion, and there's some a lack of forgiveness, and some bitterness begins to build up, and they begin to become enemies of one another rather than partners. Sometimes their lives just begin to drift in different directions until they're just sort of like roommates who are living two separate lives. We've all seen it. We've, we, we know it happens. It happens all the time. Our passion wanes even though we're really sincere at one point. <clears throat> That's what happened, I think, in the life of Jesus, I, of Judas. Eventually, he cracked. Eventually, he got fed up with the fact that Jesus kept not measuring up to his plan for who Jesus ought to be and what Jesus ought to do. And after a while, it was too much, and he embraced the plan of Satan, and he walked away from the plan of God. That's what happened. And the results were devastating. Within 24 hours, Judas was dead. He'd committed suicide in the ultimate act of rebellion against God. Because God seemed to have a different plan for his life. 
But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's go back to Luke 22. And let's see how this Passover works its way out. Beginning in verse 7 of Luke 22. Then came the first day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go prepare the Passover for us so that we may eat it. They said to him, Where do you want us to prepare it? And he said to them, When you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters. And you shall say to the owner of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large furnished upper room. Prepare it there. And they left and found everything just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Now, I think some of you have read that passage before maybe many times. Some of you have heard it before many times. I wonder if you've ever really thought about what's happening here because it cracks me up. Jesus says to these guys, Peter and John, his, his big two, his trusted advisors, Jesus says to Peter and John, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go into the city. Oh, the crowded city? You mean the city where you can't even walk because there's so many people because everybody's here for Passover? Yes, that city. I want you to go into the city, and when you've entered the city, I want you to look for a man carrying water. The sparklets guy. When you get into the city, find the sparklets guy, and when you see him, follow him. And whatever house the sparklets guy goes into, you just go right into that house. And if somebody says to you, hey, what are you doing? Say, well, the teacher wants to eat the Passover here, and he'll show you where to go. Can you imagine Peter and John getting those orders? First of all, if you haven't thought about this, the first weird thing about this is that in this culture, men don't carry water through town. That's woman's work. Women go to the well. Women fetch the water. Women bring the water back to the house. None of them has probably in their life ever seen a man carrying water through the streets. It doesn't happen. So they're supposed to go and look for a guy, a stranger, and he's going to be carrying water. And then they're supposed to follow him all cloak and dagger-like, right? Stay behind him and wherever he goes, you go. And when he goes into a house, just sneak in the door right before the door closes. And probably somebody will say to you, hey, what are you doing? And when they do, say, hey, the teacher said we should prepare the Passover, and they'll just take you to where you need to go. Imagine getting that direction. If I had gotten that direction from Jesus, I think, first of all, I would have disputed him because I'm just kind of like that. And I would have probably said, "Uh, Lord, it's Passover week. Every banquet hall is rented. Every room is full. Every house is filled with relatives. If you want to rent a banquet room on Passover night, you have to do that years in advance. You can't send me into town today and expect me to find a place. I probably would have said that. And if I didn't have the courage to say that to Jesus, I would have said, yes, sir. And I would have gone into town and I would not have looked for the sparklets, man. And I would have tried to find a friend in town and I would have said, hey, listen, uh, Jesus has lost his mind and he expects us to find him a place for the Passover. Can we just join you and your family? Maybe we'll do it in your backyard or something. That's what I would have done. But Peter and John did exactly what Jesus said, and it worked out exactly as Jesus said it would work out. I wondered about that. Why do it that way? 
I think he's challenging their faith. I think he's giving them a chance to obey him in something that seems ridiculous to them. I think he's giving them a chance to learn how trustworthy he is by taking him at his word and doing what he tells them to do. And by the way, guys, it would not be the last time that weekend that their faith would be tried, would it? You see, Peter and John came to a crossroads just like Judas did. Judas came to a point where he realized that none of this was going away that made any sense to him, and he stood at that crossroad and had to decide, am I going to follow Jesus even when it doesn't make sense, even when I don't understand, even when I'm disappointed, even when I'm confused, or am I going to go my own way and do my own thing and take matters into my own hands? And Peter and John had the same challenge. And they would face this challenge multiple times throughout the weekend. This is the first one. Am I going to follow these ridiculous instructions? Or am I going to refuse and be my own Lord? Will I go my own way? Or will I follow Jesus? Sound like a familiar crossroads? Ever been there? I've been there so many times, I can't even count. But let me tell you something I've learned. Out of all these times of coming to this crossroads and realizing that there's one direction that makes no sense to me, but it's the direction God says I should go, and then there's a direction that makes way more sense to me, but it's the direction that God told me not to go. And so many times I've gone the wrong direction. And a few times I've gotten it right. And you know what I've learned? I've learned that obedience is always the way to the middle of God's will. Always. It's always the way to be in the center of God's plan. He insists upon obedience. Because apart from faith, it's impossible to please Him. And it takes faith to obey Him when you don't get it. And when it hurts. And when you don't get answers to your most painful questions. Obedience is the way to the center of God's plan. And Jesus was going to demonstrate this vividly over the next 72 hours. But Judas failed the test. He bailed when he didn't understand. He insisted on being his own Lord. He insisted on doing it his own way. He probably didn't even realize that he had become a puppet of Satan by this point. Over the course of the weekend, all of the disciples would be tried in the fire. And 11 of them would emerge from the fire gleaming as silver. And one of them would be dead for 30 pieces of silver. They all stood at the same crossroads. It's the same crossroads you and I stand at again and again and again. And the difference between their stories comes down to what they did when they stood confused at that crossroads. Eleven trusted and obeyed, and one perished in his sin. What is God doing, or maybe not doing, in your life that you just do not understand right now? What is he allowing you to endure? What is he asking you to do? It makes no sense to you at all. What is it that you've cried out to him and said, God, let me explain this again. God, let me explain this again. 
God, I don't think you understand. Let me explain this again. How many times have you done it? And what has he left you hanging there with? What's he allowing that you just don't like? Jesus stood at that same crossroads just a few hours later in a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. The Father making His will absolutely clear. And Jesus crying out and saying, if there's any other way, Father, don't make me do this. But having heard from His Father that He must go to the cross, Jesus stood and said, nevertheless, not your will, not my will, but yours be done. And He marched straight forward into the torture of the cross. He chose to trust and obey God. And let me remind you, That choice to trust and obey God led to a torturous cross before it led to a glorious resurrection and ascension. The title of this sermon series is The Road to the Cross. The truth is that everyone who decides to be a follower of Jesus is going to have to deal with the cross. There is no way around it. Turn to Matthew 16. Let me show you what I mean. Jesus makes this absolutely clear in Matthew chapter 16. Pick it up in verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever wishes to lose his life for my sake will find it. What? The way to find life is to lose it? It makes no sense. If you want to follow me, the King of kings and Lord of lords, you have to face the torture of a cross? It makes no sense. But Jesus shares truth that often doesn't make sense to us and asks us to obey it. And look what it says in verse 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits its soul, for what will a man give in exchange for his soul? It's amazing how often we keep coming to those forks in the road, isn't it? And when we stand there confused, do I go left, do I go right, what do, what do I do in this situation? And we can stand and we can see down both roads. And on this side, there's this narrow, rocky, uphill path, and there's nobody taking this road. There's hardly anybody on it. And and it's scary, and it's dark, and it's foreboding, and it's unpopular, and it's steep. And at the end of the path, there's Jesus with His nail-pierced hand saying, come to me, and I'll give you rest. And we look to the other side and there is a wide road. It is well paved. It is well traveled. We see people on the road and they seem to be having a great time together. Nobody's running into trouble. Everybody's doing well. It's comfortable. It's big. It's popular. It's enticing. Except for one thing. It leads to death. There is a narrow road that leads to life. There is a wide road that leads to death. And we come to this crossroads so many times. And every single time we stand at this crossroads, we have a choice to make. Am I going to trust and obey a God who I often don't understand? 
Or am I going to insist upon being my own God and go my own way? Will I trust and obey? Or will I go my own way? And we measure it in the scales. My friends, be careful at that intersection. The choices that we make at that intersection will determine the course of our lives. The righteous shall live by faith. How will you live?